they call it the greatest story ever told. It's a story about a teacher whose students loved him, a fearless reformer, a sage, a messiah, a god. It's a story of heartbreak and loss, a story that ends in the greatest sacrifice of all time, and then, as if that wasn't enough, death is conquered forever. This story contains all the wisdom you'll ever need, the good news, the gospel truth. And frankly, it's a story that Talmud couldn't care less about. Moving on. If there was a book, and it took a year to read, seven years to read, a lifetime to read. If there was a book, and each page contained centuries. If there was a book, and that book was burned over and over and over again, would you read it? I'm Mo Martin, and this is Radio Free Babylonia. The last time we investigated the attitudes of the Talmud and its rabbis to outsiders, we covered the Romans, a great physical threat to the rabbis, a merciless imperial power bent on the violent domination of all Jews on their way to other diverse peoples of the world. Today, we'll be dealing with that more ethereal boogeyman, the danger that lurks within, heresy, or, as we've come to know it in recent years, Christianity. Now, before we move forward, I want to make some disclaimers. We won't be talking about Christianity here. I mean, I know I just said we'll be talking about Christianity, but I didn't really mean Christianity, as in the Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church or the various Protestant denominations. We won't be talking about Christian Jewish relations. Not the burnings of Jewish holy books, nor the anti-Semitic remarks by great Christian thinkers from Augustine of Hippo down to Martin Luther. We won't even be talking about early Christianity and its development from a small cult of personality around a Galilean Jewish sectarian to international barnstorming faith on the rise, even though that history is contemporary with the writing of the Talmud. We won't be talking about Christianity for one simple reason. The rabbis of the Talmud never discuss it. Not really. Remember, the rabbis are an elite group, under oppressive governments. Both elitism and oppression can lead to exclusivity, and what's more, a certain disconnect from reality. From their ivory tower and in their ghettos, the rabbis are more comfortable talking about Christianity as they imagine it than as a real-world phenomenon we'd recognize from the New Testament or the Church Fathers. Instead of Christianity as it actually existed, the rabbis talked about minut, heresy, and in particular, heresy is practiced by the followers of Pantera, which scholars think is probably a nasty name the rabbis called Jesus of Nazareth. Pantera followers are an interesting bunch. 
Some of them can heal wounds and perform other miracles. All of them quote scripture cleverly. The earlier Tanaitic sources, sources from the time of the Mishnah, are wary of these skills with words and healing. The main thing that sticks out about Christians at this time to the rabbis of the Talmud? How damn persuasive they are. It's easy to fall into the trap of agreeing with them, and in doing so, be lost forever to the quote-unquote correct rabbinic way of doing things. Probably the most illuminating story along these lines is that of Elazar ben Dama, a rabbi who gets bitten by a venomous snake in Avodazara, the Talmud tractate on dealing with idol worshippers. Ben Dama asks for the help of a certain Yaakov, a healer and a follower of Jesus. But before anyone can go fetch the helpful heretic, Rabbi Ishmael, Ben Dama's uncle, points out the prohibition on being healed by a heretic. Ben Dama, in his sickbed, claims to know a verse that justifies seeking healing from a heretic, a verse that would literally save his life. But he dies before giving it over. The kicker? Rabbi Ishmael thanks God that his nephew died before straying off the rabbinic path. But while the actual Tanaitic sources may show a reticence bordering on cowardice in dealing with Christians, later generations of Talmudic rabbis, the Babylonian Amoraim, with their love of argument as a literary form, cast their imaginations back in time and pictured the Palestinian rabbis of the Mishnah putting up a brave fight and always getting the heroic upper hand against the villainous Christian. Time and again, we hear the Amoraim talking wistfully about those rabbis in Israel, the great ones, back then and over there, who had the wit and the daring to take on the vile heretics in debate and beat them. Well, we all need heroes and villains. Just as heroes teach us who to imitate, who we want to grow into, villains teach us not only who we need to fight against, but who we don't want to become. So what's the unforgivable sin of the Christians of the Talmud? What do they do that the rabbis, our heroes, find so reprehensible, so dastardly, so villainous? Well, they like the Bible too much. Now I know what you're thinking. Aren't the rabbis the ones who are super into the Bible? Aren't they the ones who have it all memorized? who justify everything they say with some biblical verse or another? And you'd be right. One of the most frequently asked questions in the Talmud is, where does this come from? Meaning, what biblical verse can I link this rabbinic statement to? But there's a difference between living the Bible, studying its words and contradictions and beauties every day, and using the Bible for self-aggrandizement, only to make the points that suit you Let's look at a story from the Talmud tractate Sukkot. Two Christians are bickering, back and forth. I'm better than you, says Sasson to Simcha. Because in the book of Isaiah, it says they obtain joy, Sasson, and gladness, Simcha. Sasson first. I'm better than you, shoots back Simcha, because in the book of Esther, it says the Jews had gladness and joy. Simcha first. One day, Sasson threatens, they'll take you out of heaven and make you a running slave. As it says in Isaiah, 
they will go forth with gladness. One day, Simcha snarls, they'll take you out of heaven and use your skull as a water pitcher. As it says in Isaiah, therefore with joy shall they draw water. I know it's hard to follow the puns, but the upshot is, these two goons think that the prophecies of Isaiah and the words of the Holy Torah are about them. Eventually, they threaten each other with violence and excommunication from heaven. They turn Torah into, let's just say, a urination contest. What makes a heretic are not the points of departure from the tradition, but the points of commonality. Someone who just doesn't hold with the tradition is an idol worshiper and can be judged independently from the category of Jew. But a heretic is worse. He's a mockery of a Jew, a perversion of everything the rabbis stand for. He studied Torah. He should know better. As much as I try to see things from the rabbinical perspective when reading Talmud, the idea of religious tolerance has just been drilled too deep into my thick skull, and I don't always get the heresy hate. But I will say this. There are lots of ways to interact with the culture. Lots of ways to make it your own, to add to it, to engage in conversation with it. Some of these ways can only be done or are best done by people native to that culture. And some of those ways can only be done or are best done by people coming into the culture with fresh eyes. But neither natives nor converts are the problem. The problem is with consumers. People who have no stake in the culture, but love to talk about it, purchase it, show it off, be inspired by it. And it's not just that they don't get it. It's more that they have power over the people who produce the culture, and they don't acknowledge that power as they take and take. Americans who like yoga but don't have any interest in Hinduism, white rich kids from the suburbs saying the N-word when they sing along to Kanye, sold-out productions of Fiddler on the Roof where no one, not in the audience and not on the stage, knows where tradition comes from. We always keep our heads covered and always wear a little prayer shawl. You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. I think this is why the rabbis are so insulted by the Christians they imagine in the Talmud. It's not just that they're a rising religious threat, as they were in real life. It's that they hold all the power, or at least they do after the rise of Constantine to emperor in the year 306. But unlike the Romans, who also held all the cards, Christians want more. They want our book, and they want it their way. Take Isaiah, a book about the deep, complicated relationship between the people of Israel and God. In the hands of heretics, it becomes simply a promise about a man, no longer our story, but theirs. The heretics read our book and make it their toy, their entertainment. And they get violent when their toy is denied to them. 
the unslakable Christian thirst for Bible is on display in a story in the early pages of Avodazara. Rabbi Abahu, talking to some heretics, says, You know who's great? Rav Safra. You should give him a tax exemption. So for the next 13 years, the Christian authorities don't collect taxes on the holy Rav Safra. But one day, these heretics catch up to Rav Safra and ask him to explain a verse of Torah, Amos 3.2 to be exact, which says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will visit upon you all your iniquities. When Safra says nothing, they set upon him, choking him. Rabbi Abahu arrives just in time and says, Why are you attacking him? I told you he was a great scholar. Some scholars, say the Christians. He can't even explain a verse of Torah. Who said anything about Torah, says Rabbi Abahu in Safra's defense. I said he was a great scholar of the law. Safra doesn't need skill for interpreting Torah because he doesn't waste his time debating with heretics. Instead, let me tell you what the verse means. And then Abahu spins a parable, saying, It is like one who has loaned money to a friend and to an enemy. With the friend, he collects little by little. With the enemy, he collects all in one go. The Christians are sent away, satisfied, although the whole affair is a pretty snotty anti-Christian polemic. Now, there's a conflict here. Cultural appropriation. The dominant culture's ravenous consumption of a minority culture is a very real problem, faced by just about every minority and minoritized culture under the sun. But these depictions in the Talmud are cartoonish caricatures, almost as parody-like as the crude way minority cultures get consumed by mainstream society. These caricatures in the Talmud are not necessarily a bad thing. Parody and anger are a legitimate way to cope with the stress of having your culture stolen and consumed. But it does present a problem to us as Talmud readers, looking for more complex and richer meanings. These exaggerated stories of Christians, not only do they have nothing to do with real Christians, they're such broad depictions, they barely have anything to do with the way real people act. I might as well translate some of these stories as Duh, I'm a Christian and I don't know my Bible. Or, I'm a bloodthirsty Christian, fear me. How do we bridge that gap between the cartoon and real life? Between the story and the moral? Between the parodied Christian and the commodified Jew? I wish there was a quick and easy way to learn the difference between a culture and how we consume that culture between a person and a caricature. But the truth is, to transform consumable culture into real culture, cartoons of people into real people, you need to put in the effort. You can't just do yoga as an exercise and never take time to reflect on the higher spiritual truths that yoga was designed to approach. Or, you know, never give a thought to widespread poverty in India. You can't call yourself a hip-hop head and not really engage with the struggles, heartbreaks, and triumphs of the people who created that hip-hop. Torah is long and difficult. When Isaiah says the Messiah will be born to a maiden 
Does he really mean virgin? Well, you'll have to go to all the other uses of the word maiden and find out. You can't just cherry-pick the parts that mention your name, like Sasson and Simcha did, or the parts that interest you. You have to work at it, tie together disparate themes and ideas, sit with conflict and appreciate disagreement. You need arguments, heroes, villains, miracles, sages, messiahs. You need a place to put the laws and stories and heartbreak and laughter. Sometimes you need a new testament to your efforts. Sometimes you need a Talmud. This episode of Radio Free Babylonia was written and performed by Mo Martin. Special thanks to Harry Waxberg, Sashat Mack, Jack Eichard, and David C. Kalman. Radio Free Babylonia was produced and edited by me, Michal Richardson, for Jewish Public Media, which creates Jewish media for all audiences. If you like this episode, get in touch with us at RadioFreeBabylonia.org. While you're there, check out Talking in Shul, a roundtable of brilliant and witty ladies discussing Jewish topics that matter. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and just about any way you listen to podcasts. We're everywhere. But we'd love it if you'd subscribe and rate us in iTunes. It actually helps. Thank you. Thank you.